And he led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophecy or prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. And again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning again. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been making our way through the gospel of Mark, working through it over these past months, looking at the life of Jesus and answering the question, who is he? Who is Jesus Christ and and what did he come to do? We've been asking and answering these two questions, and we're coming into the final two chapters to finish on Resurrection Sunday. At Bethany Church, we believe that when we open God's Word, we let the text speak to us. In fact, a saying we like to use is, is we believe that the Bible is God's Word, and that when we open God's Word, God speaks to us. And that is what we are doing right now as we come to the Gospel of Mark. So let's do that together. Well, if you remember, as we've been working our way through this Gospel... Mark's gospel is the shortest, the shortest of the four gospels at 16 chapters. But if you've noticed, we've been in Jesus' Passion Week since chapter 11. So a big chunk of this gospel is given to the final days of Jesus' life. He covers three years of ministry or so in about 10 chapters. 
And a big chunk of the book then is on the triumphal entry, the Last Supper, his trial, his betrayal, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Why is that? Because that's what Jesus came to do. That's what he came to do. Yes, he is a great teacher. He is the best teacher ever. But he ultimately came to save us from the nightmare of sin and death. And so that is why so much of Mark and so much of the other Gospels really is given to those final few days of Jesus' life. You're woken up from a nightmare. One where you I'm just so certain and so clear that what you were dreaming in that nightmare was absolutely real. Maybe you're being chased or followed or a family member was in danger and it just seemed so real to you. You were absolutely certain it was happening. And upon waking in that, the, those uh, sweat-drenched sheets, you ever been there? You wake up in those sweat-drenched sheets, you, you let out that gasp of relief. <gasps> It was all a dream. It was, it was all a nightmare. And the dream fades. And what happens? Reality takes over. Oh, this is reality as you wake up. This morning, we're going to look at a living nightmare. A living nightmare. Peter had just been asleep, hadn't he? Asleep in the garden. Just a few hours earlier as Jesus was praying. And he has woken up to a living nightmare. As he's come out of that slumber in the garden, it's real. It's real. Jesus has been arrested, and now he's being taken to trial. And Peter's worst nightmare is going to come true. It's real as he wakes up. Remember, he had just said a few hours earlier, emphatically, here's his words, if I must die with you, you'll see it coming up on the screen, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Just a few hours earlier, and they all said the same, Mark wrote. Well, this morning, these rapid events of Jesus' life, his arrest, uh, they continue. After his arrest, Jesus is, he's whisked away to face an unjust and illegal trial before the Sanhedrin. While Peter... Peter faces a trial of his own, we're going to see, a living nightmare. So we're going to look at how both men respond under this intense pressure, intense pressure, and how Jesus' faithfulness gives even the greatest denier hope this morning, the greatest denier, Peter, and even you this morning, gospel hope in Jesus Christ. That is what we are going to find. So grab your outline. Hopefully you have it there in your Bibles. Open to Mark 14. We're going to look first at Jesus the rock. Jesus the rock, the one who, in our first point, holds up as the strong rock and perfect witness. Jesus the rock who holds up as a perfect witness. He's unflinching. Jesus is unflinching. Do you remember our image of the hurricane, the storm that we've been talking about in Mark? This storm is swirling around Jesus Christ, and in the eye of the storm where you can oftentimes find calm and peace, he stands there firm, absolutely resolute. Though he knows once he opens his mouth today, there is no going back. There is no going back for Jesus. 
the first, let's look at our setting a little bit. It's Mark's, it's Mark's uh, artistry, his absolute brilliance. He mentions that Peter, he, he's following Jesus now. Uh, and, and then he steps away from Peter for a bit to talk about uh, Jesus' story, only to come back to Peter. It's kind of strange how he writes it. Look at verse 53 again with me of chapter 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest, that's Caiaphas, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Why does Mark do this? He starts with Peter, and he jumps to this trial scene with, with Jesus in the, and, and, and back. He wants us to know and to see and to know that these events are happening at the exact same time. Simultaneous events happening at the exact same time. Two rocks, really, not just Jesus, are being put under pressure simultaneously. Jesus, the rock, the foundation, the cornerstone as he's called, of the church, as Scripture calls him, and Peter, so named by Jesus, which means rock. Two rocks are under intense pressure, and the stories parallel simultaneously together. Peter's followed along, and he's here in the courtyard, and even as we'll see, he makes his way close enough to even see Jesus by his third denial, close enough to see him with his eyes. So keep that in mind this parallel of these two stories this morning that are happening at the same time as we head into the courtroom of the Sanhedrin, we're going to see this. Those who are against Jesus attempt to discredit and destroy his mission, and really him. The Sanhedrin was the highest court at that time. The highest court under Jewish law during, remember, this is a Roman-occupied time of their land. Uh, they, they, the highest authority over religious matters, uh, but also criminal matters, but not the power at this time to invoke capital punishment. That's death. They have great power, but they're occupied. Only at the hands of Rome or with the permission of Rome can the Sanhedrin put somebody to death. They needed the Roman governor, Pilate, for that, who we're going to see next week. So it was a courtroom they were in. Jesus would have been surrounded by possibly 70 men in the middle of them with a couple scribes there taking notes and Caiaphas, the high priest, sitting, residing over all of it. It's a tense situation. It's a courtroom. And yet this Sanhedrin went to extreme and even illegal means to convict Jesus. Listen to this list of violations. Trials were forbidden at night. This is midnight. A defense attorney was supposed to be given. There was none for Jesus. A guilty vote and sentence were supposed to be a day apart so the judge could sleep on it. Use some wisdom. This happened in a matter of moments. In addition, uh, to charge someone of, of blasphemy, it could only be for cursing God's name. They charged him of blasphemy. But Jesus has never done that. And here's another one. The sentence has already been passed. Death, verse 55 says, they've passed the sentence before they've brought him to trial. It was illegal in our time. It's illegal in their time. They just, they just need to provide some evidence. They've already got the sentence. It's ready, and it's death. 
they reveal just how, how absolutely determined they are to destroy Jesus. And even our text, a few, verse, uh, few verses, uh, the first few ones say against multiple times. They're against him. They're against him. They're against him. They show us in the text those who are against Jesus. They want to discredit, destroy his mission. Look at verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They were willing even to go so far as to bring false witnesses, those whose words didn't match up. Witnesses at this time had to be in absolute full agreement, even down to the most uh, minute detail. They had to agree, and you had to have more than one. And if they didn't agree, it was discredited. They couldn't be entered as, as evidence. And they just can't seem to pull this off. These witnesses come forward, and the first ones strike out. They strike out. They can't get their testimony to align, and so it can't be admitted as evidence. And the second ones, though, come along and say this. You'll see it popping up. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. I think we got a slide of that coming up. They said, I, 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 he, we heard him say it. He said, I will destroy this temple. I will absolutely destroy it. It was a half-truth. Jesus never said I. He never said that. He never said, I will destroy this temple. But he said, but tear it down, this temple, and I will rebuild it, referring to his body. He never said it. It was a false testimony. And yet, and yet we have seen, as we've looked at the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Mark in the second half that Jesus' ministry, it was a real threat to the temple. It was a real threat to their temple. Why? Because as Jesus comes, he makes it obsolete. He's going to make it obsolete. Remember, he went in and cleansed it and was there. He's now the place of the actual presence of God on earth. He fulfills what the temple was there for. Jesus will die, and he will pay the sacrifice that will end all sacrifices. There won't be a need for any more. That's what the temple was for. It's the gospel. His death pays for your sin. And through faith, we're given his righteousness as a transfer of records. And so the temple wasn't needed anymore. You thought the temple was great access to God? Wait till Jesus comes. Wait till Jesus comes. He's making it obsolete. And so he was, in a real sense, he was an actual threat to their temple. So even though their accusation couldn't stick, they were really close to the heart of his mission with it, weren't they? They were really close to the heart of his mission. But this trial, as we see, was not going how they had planned it. It was not going according to their plan. Things are off the rail here. He, he was this threat, and they needed to dispose him. He was a threat to the temple. He was a threat to their religious order and the structure and the hierarchy. And so the high priest Caiaphas steps in here to take matters into his own hand. And here's what we get, though. The truthful testimony we're going to see of the rock that is both confession and 
warning. It's the next point in your outline there. The truthful testimony of the rock is both confession and warning. Caiaphas asked Jesus to speak. He comes to him and says, speak. What are are you going to make of of these charges? Which actually is another violation. You don't ask somebody to testify against himself. Another violation. What do you say to this, Jesus? Did you threaten the temple? And Jesus was silent. Absolutely silent. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears, is silent. That's what we see here. So he opened not his mouth. He's silent with these accusations. How difficult would that have been? You ever been accused of something? How easy is it to keep your mouth and your words to yourself in those moments? It's, act, it's almost impossible, isn't it? Just to, and especially when it's unjust. Especially when it's not true. That's the hardest time. Imagine he sits there, surrounded by the, 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 the impressive, the elite, the leaders. They accuse him. It's not even true. And he just sits there silently. Stand silent. I think what's going on, I think in Jesus' sovereign understanding of the the prophecy fulfilled, he also knows this is now the time for something else. Not these accusations. This is now the time for something else. Jesus has kept silent, hasn't he, about his identity through the Gospel of Mark a lot. It's it's weird, isn't it? They come and he's got an opportunity. He says, well, don't talk about it now. Just, Just keep it a secret. Don't share that yet. All through Mark, we've seen it. Jesus knows that now is the time. He wants the million-dollar question to come up. And so he's silent. You know, Caiaphas had to have been furious, frustrated. Here's our chance. Speak up, Jesus. Say something. And Jesus just sits there silently. He absolutely is probably just seething inside, I would think. Here's our chance. And so the question comes. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? One commentator said, it's a, it's a, a Christological Christ, Christological confession right in that moment in the mouth of the high priest. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Mark builds the tension and all history hangs on that quiet moment in that room. He says, I am. I am. And he goes on in those words to say, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus makes a a bolder claim than just Messiah here. He makes a really bold claim. He pulls together Psalm 110, verse 1, Daniel 7 here, Son of Man, and he paints for them the picture of this divine figure, not just Messiah, who they were expecting to come and be a human. He paints a bigger picture. They got much more than they bargained for with the million-dollar question. He paints this picture. 
of the divine figure who now sits at God's right hand, who will come in God-like glory, not on our type of clouds, but on God's glory and shrouding clouds, different clouds to come to judge humanity. That's what he's saying in these few little words, and they would have got it. And you can see they did get it, didn't they? They understood. It's a confession to be God in flesh. It's a confession to be God in flesh. And he's essentially saying to them, you think you're judging me in this moment. No, no, no. I, I will come to judge you. That's why it's so infuriating. And they judge him as blasphemous. Blasphemous. But it's only blasphemous if it's not true, right? It's only blasphemous if it's not true about him. Do you see the irony here? Are you catching the irony here? The judge of the world is being judged by his creatures. There's an irony here. We'll decide about you, Jesus. We will judge you, Jesus. We, we will define you, Jesus. They had missed his teaching, his miracles, his claims. And actually, in this moment, they are the ones committing blasphemy. You see it. They're judging the judge of the world. They're the ones here. The places should be switched in this moment. That's the irony. And someday they will be. He will be the judge. It's what he says. He claims son of man. That figure comes to judge in Daniel. He will be the judge. This is what we have to see in this moment. Here it is. This trial here, it's the next point in your outline. This trial, it's a microcosm, a small world, microcosm of the human condition. We trade places with God. That's what we're seeing in this little trial here. One commentator said this, we've put God in the dock and assumed our position on the bench. That's what's taking place here. And every one of us, every one of us does this. From the atheist who denies Jesus is God to the Christian who sins, no, God, I will judge what is good for me in this moment. Let me tell you, Jesus, how it's going to be. John Stott puts this perfectly. I love this quote. You'll see it coming up. The essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God. That's the switch. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for you, for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where we only deserve to be. We claim prerogatives which belong uh, to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. The trial is a picture of the gospel. The trial is a picture of the gospel. Jesus in the place of the Sanhedrin, what the Sanhedrin deserves, and our sin is an extension of the Sanhedrin. We're getting a little picture of the gospel in this trial. This is humanity's problem. All humanity, whether they're in this room, whether they've, they're outside this room, whether they're on the other side of the world, this is humanity's problem. We assert ourselves. We decide what's true, good, and beautiful. We decide, not our maker. 
You see, sin is never just about breaking one of God's little rules. We can, we can boil it down to that. We can feel like it's just rule-keeping. When you and I sin or fail to live into God's goodness out of omission, as he's decreed, we're playing God. We are playing God. God in the dock and we on the bench. Just like we're seeing in this trial. It's a microcosm. It's the word. It's the way it was in the garden, wasn't it? Think back to the Garden of Eden. Did, did, did God really say this? Take God off, uh, off and, and place yourselves on the bench. Did, did, did God really say this? You know, he just wants to keep you from the pleasure that you deserve. He wants to keep you in the dark. It started in the garden, didn't it? That's why our mission statement of helping people follow Jesus has to be more than just about someone saying a prayer. It's more than that. We're helping people follow Jesus is our mission statement, Bethany Church. Our life on the other side of that sincere, regenerate prayer matters. It matters if sin is more than just breaking a little rule. It's playing God. Following Jesus means day in and day out, decision after decision. It only begins when we place our faith in Christ. It's a lifelong battle then that begins, and it wages war on our hearts, doesn't it? You felt that battle on your heart. I feel that battle every day. It's waging war for the battle of our hearts. Letting God be God in my life. That's what it is. That's what you're feeling. When people are watching, and even when they're not watching me. And people were watching Peter, weren't they? And what happened to him? He crumbled. He crumbled. Let's take a look at him. Peter crumbles as his hopes and dreams, they come crashing down. His hopes and dreams come crashing down around him. Well, things go from, I would say, bad to worse. Bad to worse as the scene scene transforms from a trial with Jesus into a riot. That's what happens. We go from a trial to a riot like that. As they charge blasphemy and, and they're fulfilling many prophecies along the way, they don't even realize it, as they spit on him, as they cover his face and strike him and say, prophesy which one of us hit you, Jesus. And then they beat him. And what does Jesus do? He allows himself to be carried along allows himself to be abused and mistreated. Remember, again, the judge being judged to put himself all the way in the place that we deserve on that cross. It's starting right here. But Peter can't see it, can he? He can't see it. He can't see it in that moment. Why? He had, I think he had different hopes. He had different dreams for the Messiah. He had different hopes for Jesus, and he's watching them crash and burn. And so what does he do? He denies and disowns Jesus. Peter denies and disowns. We've got Peter's words. They're they're, they're ringing in our ears. We hear them in our ears. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. He just said him in the garden. I will not deny you. We can't help but think, 
well, maybe Peter, the rock. Maybe Peter. If anybody's going to stand firm, it's the bold, out there, out in front, hard on his sleeve, Peter, right? If anybody. But he doesn't. The one who's named the rock, what happens? He crumbles under pressure. Peter failed Jesus how many times in the garden, you remember? Three. And now he'll fail him again three times at his trial. Remember, this is simultaneous now, we said at the beginning, to Jesus' action here. And there's many parallels. Take a look at some. They're coming up on the screen. I want to show you some parallels between Peter and Jesus. Here they are. Peter was questioned by a servant girl. Jesus is questioned by the whole Sanhedrin. Peter's correctly charged. You're a disciple. We're going to see that. Jesus is falsely charged as blasphemous. Peter replied with lies. Jesus tells the truth. I am. Peter with the guards at a warm fire, warming himself while Jesus is being beaten, spit upon by the guards. Peter curses himself, as we'll see in a moment. Jesus is cursed by the Sanhedrin. You see how Mark sets it up for us? He puts this parallel, so we'll look at both of them, Peter and Jesus. You see, here's the reason. Peter's on trial, too. Peter's on trial, too, in this moment. And his trial is the one you and I can relate to much more, isn't it? His trial is the one you and I can relate to much more than Jesus on trial. We sing the song, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. That's Peter. That's me many times. How often do you feel this? I don't know if I can keep going, Lord. How many times have you said that? Quiet of your heart or in your room. I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I can keep following where you lead me, Jesus. Peter's still there, but he's at a distance, isn't he? I don't know if I can keep following, Jesus. I- I'm still there, but I'm kind of far. I'm kind of back now. I'm kind of in the courtyard like Peter. <laughs> I'm kind of there. Where are you taking me, Jesus? Where are we going? Where are you taking me? I got to think these questions were going through Peter's mind. This was not how he thought this night was going to go after that Passover meal. He was taking Peter somewhere to a trial. And it's Peter's living nightmare, but it's going to become a blessing. Peter's true character would be revealed and the true reason he was following Jesus in this moment. You have to give him some credit. He's still there. He's still there at a distance in the courtyard below the room where Jesus is. But, you know, we're, uh, you ever heard of a, when a, a 12 seed beats a one seed, number one seed? It's like an upset. Like you're like, whoa, that wasn't supposed to happen. A servant girl comes along. A girl with no standing in the eyes of the community, a servant. She comes along and she rattles him like that. It's an upset. You would not think that it would go this way for the rock, the lead disciple. A servant girl comes along and Peter denies and disowns. Look at verse 67 with me through 70. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him, that's the servant girl, and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, 
saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed, and the servant girl saw him again and again, and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. This is Peter's living nightmare. This is the nightmare he woke up to. This is his biggest fear. Actually, I mean, actually his biggest fear, his greater fear, is the repercussions for following Jesus. Self-preservation. And the fruit of that fear is actually the denial. His greater fear in this moment is the repercussions for following Jesus. And the persistent servant girl, she doesn't give up, does she? She tries once. And you, no, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. She, she, she rallies up some bystanders. No, 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 he, he's there. He, he's won. Imagine being there in that courtyard yourself, and it's you. The fingers are all pointed at you. Who loves to have everybody's eyes in a room on them? Do you love that? No, we don't like that, do we? I'm not doing it right now, but um, we don't love that, do we? It's, 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 it's intimidating, isn't it? That's what's going on for Peter. They're all looking, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I think we saw you. I saw you. He responds with another denial. He has the opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord in that moment, as Messiah, as Peter's already claimed it. You're the Christ. He's already said it. Is he too now one who is against Jesus? The third opportunity comes, and Peter says this in verse 71. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. The third time, his words are the most severe. He's pronouncing a divine curse on himself and those around him. A modern-day equivalent would be something like this. I do not know him, and if I'm lying, God strike us all dead. That's what Peter's saying. That would be in our own terms today. He'd strike me dead and strike all you around me in this courtyard. They'd probably all jump back. You know, like, whoa, Peter, that's what he's saying. A divine curse. And the rooster crows at that moment. Do you have some sin in your life that all it takes is a little tiny trigger for you of some kind to make you feel that you're like, you're right back in the middle of it again? Or the guilt of it is right there hanging on your shoulder again? Maybe it's a song that triggers you, a photo, restaurant you were at, or your child brings it up again. Something like that. Or maybe it's just you waking up in the, every day and looking in the mirror. Maybe all you need is the mirror. No trigger past that. Peter's is the rooster. The sound of the rooster would have happened every day from this day forward in Peter's life. Every time, every morning, he would have begun every day with the reminder of what took place when Jesus attached it to the rooster crow. Can you imagine being Peter the rest of his life? Waking up every day, and the first thing you hear is not, good morning, sweetie. <laughs> it's the rooster crowing again and again and again and again, and it comes back. You betrayed Jesus. You betrayed Jesus. You betrayed Jesus over and over again. All it took was every morning, the rooster crowing. Every morning. Can you imagine that life from then on, that moment? Some of you can relate. All it takes is the mirror for you. 
every morning. And it's excruciating. And it broke Peter. That's the key. It was a brokenness in Peter in this moment that led to life. Let's take a look. A look from Jesus results in grief for Peter that leads to life. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time, verse 71, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. He wept. Not just a little tear. He, he wept. You've had those whole body shaking sobs when they just, it takes over. I think that's what's happening with Peter. He's broken in grief in this moment as we enter into it with him. But did you know that Luke gives us a little more info? When Peter denied Jesus the third time, do you know what Luke says? Their eyes met. Their eyes met. Jesus looks at Peter what do you think the look he was he saw in that moment? What do you think the look was? Maybe, yeah, I told you so, yeah. Well, you know who's seen my, you might think it might be a harsh look, condemning look. You know who's seen my ugliest, meanest, harsh looks? Think about it for yourself. Who's seen your ugliest, meanest, harshest looks? I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's my own kid's. I'm their loving father, and yet they have probably seen my harshest face. There are times when they betray me, so to speak. I can give them a, a look that's harsh, a look that's judgmental, a look that's I told you so, right? Shame-filled and cruel. I don't think that's what Peter saw. I don't think that's what Peter saw. He didn't see a harsh, judgmental father. He saw the eyes of his salvation. He saw the eyes of his Savior in that moment. Look at Sinclair Ferguson. He says about that look. That look, you'll see the quote coming up. That look was to be his salvation. For he saw in those eyes not condemnation, but compassion. That was the turning point of his life, that moment. Now in this most painful and memorable of ways, Peter saw himself as he truly was, repented, and was remade in that moment to the great apostle. That's what happened, I believe, in that moment. The ultimate failure, it means, was his moment of transformation. His moment of, of grace, because he realized in that moment he'd been following Jesus for the wrong reasons because they all had come crashing down. Worldly power, maybe his own goodness. Hey, I'm disciple, number, I'm disciple A, disciple number one. When his moral cowardice was revealed, and Jesus seems to be failing. What's he have left? He's got nothing left to prop himself up with. No resume, nothing left in that moment because he was following Jesus for what he would get out of Jesus. And that was crumbling. At that moment, I think those idols of Peter began to, to, to be revealed and to fall. And Peter was born in that moment, I believe. He was born there. While another betrayer, Judas, what would happen? Worldly sorrow that led to death, Corinthians says. Peter's sorrow leads to true repentance in that moment. And he breaks down 
and weeps. So how do we not become a Peter? How do you and I now, living day to day, when the temptation's there, where are we going, Jesus? I don't like this courtyard. Why are they taking you upstairs? What's coming around the corner, Jesus? How do we avoid becoming a Peter? Or at least the first type of Peter. It's our final point. How not to be Peter? How not to be Peter? It's easy to relate to Peter, isn't it? How do you respond? Here's our question. How do you respond when all your hopes and dreams come crashing in? That's the question to ask. Peter was on the winning team, wasn't he? They were going to take back Jerusalem by force and, and, and set up Jesus as the Messiah. It'd be glorious, wouldn't it? We're on the winning team. It was all success until it wasn't anymore, right? And Jesus is condemned to death in front of Peter, and it all crashes and burns, and he abandons God in that moment. But don't we have the temptation to do the same thing? You have your ideas. I have my ideas of how my life should go. Peter had his. How it's supposed to go, how it's supposed to be, what's supposed to happen here and there. In a life, in a relationship, in a job, in a conversation, in a, vaca- in a vacation, even in a meal. One meal. I have my idea how this should go. And then it doesn't go that way. And how we respond to God in those moments is the very revealing of the true state of our heart. Because that's what's happening with Peter here. The way he thought things were supposed to go in his life, they were not going that way. And we sometimes thrash or we get weak. We find ourselves doing and saying things that we never thought we would do when the furnace gets turned up, when the pressure comes in like it is for Peter, because it's falling apart. And sometimes we do, don't we? We crumble. Peter didn't quite understand the gospel yet. But I think in this moment he's starting to. Because as Luke said in that moment, he's looking at the bloodied and bruised and spat upon Messiah. And I think he's beginning to realize salvation is not about my works. It can never be about my works. It's not about winning It's not about worldly success. It's not about the power I thought we were going to have. Jesus, it was so close. It's not about that. There's going to be a road of of weakness, a road that led to death on a cross. And it'd be a road that's only traveled by grace alone. Grace alone. Remember, Peter had just ultimately failed from the garden to the trial. He had nothing to offer Jesus in that moment. And yet I think he got a compassionate look from him. A lot of us are like Peter. Maybe you think you are trusting Jesus, but you're really trusting your own goodness. Is that you? Maybe you think you're trusting Jesus, but you're trusting your your past successes, your track record. Those were all gone for Peter, weren't they? Or maybe you're trusting Jesus because we think Uh, He can give us something, as Peter did. Power. Authority. So how do we avoid becoming like Peter when the immense trial comes? Because that's the key to this. You have to be so certain of your love for Jesus 
your faith in Jesus and following him because he's the only way and realizing that he is the way, not your works, not your track record, not your past successes. He is the way. He is your righteousness. He is your goodness. And you have to be so certain of that and to realize it in your weakness that truly you don't deserve those things you think you deserve or I deserve. And in those moments, break down and weep as Peter did. He's repenting. You have to believe that the gospel is a gospel of grace. So that when your big flaws get exposed, because they will, and mine will too, that when your big flaws get exposed, like Peter, he's in the middle of that. When life comes undone, everything seems like it's crashing in. You realize I'm saved again because the rock stood firm. That's, what, that's how you avoid becoming a Peter. Because they, it will happen. It will come crashing in time and time in life. That's life in a fallen world. And because Jesus the rock stood firm, we say again, I will stand firm in faith in him. That's what we do. And not deny my Savior. In words, in actions, in deeds, and instead respond in love as he did. That's how. It's, it's almost like one of those things you can't, if, if you're waiting for the moment for the crisis to happen, to figure out how to respond, it's like it's too late. That's why we talk about the gospel so much at Bethany Church. That's why we steep ourselves in the work of Jesus week after week because we're, we're getting ready. We're training for when the walls come crashing in. If you wait till the moment when, when everything seems to fall apart, it's too late. Now is the time so that we prepare and we're ready. And when it comes, you go, okay, it's coming. It looks, where are you leading me, Jesus? This courtyard is horrible. It's crashing in. Oh, but we're ready. I knew this was coming. I know you're faithful. I will stand firm. That's how we avoid. But what if you're already a Peter? What if you know today, I have denied Jesus, and you know it. Guess what? Peter was restored. Peter was restored. And so can you be too. We know from the Gospel of John, Jesus comes along and he, he has this great time with Peter. He tells him, feed my sheep. Do you, love me? Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. We know he's restored there. But in our own Gospel, look at Mark 16, 7 coming up on the screen in front of us. After Jesus' resurrection, what's one of the first things he says? But go tell his disciples, or the angel says, and Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going to go before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. You think Peter was restored? If it was a look of judgment in that moment, never to be restored, Peter wouldn't be in this sentence here. Peter would not be in verse 7. Go tell the disciples and Peter, because he's probably thinking in this moment, he's not one of them. Go tell him, come, he's going to see Jesus too. Peter was restored, and so can you be too. The broken rock becomes the rock upon which the church is built. Peter, I'll build my rock. I'll build my church on this rock. He, says, he tells him that. The broken, repentant sinner looked to Jesus as Peter did. And when you do, you're not going to find the eyes of a harsh, judging father. You're going to find eyes of compassion and forgiveness. 
You can be restored. Let's pray. Lord God, we enter into Peter's living nightmare today, and yet we don't want to stay there because I know he didn't want to stay there. He realized in that broken moment to look to you in repentance and faith. And so, Lord, this morning, Jesus, we look to you again, knowing that we too have our plans, we too have our ideas of how we think things should go. And sometimes when they don't, they reveal the true idols of our heart. But that's actually a grace. That's actually a mercy. The rooster crowing was God's grace to Peter. Not his judgment. It was a wake-up call to Peter. And so, Lord, let it be our wake-up call today, too, to live more boldly, to live more purely and obediently, to respond when the pressures of life come in with faith that stands firm like a rock, because Jesus Christ went ahead of us to the cross. He made the good testimony, the true and righteous testimony. I am, he said. Help us believe that today. Help someone even here today find hope when they feel like they have denied. Let them know there is hope to be restored from any sin. There's true life that can come when we too break down in repentance like Peter did. To Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to worship. David. Yeah, let's respond by singing.